You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Good morning, good morning everybody. It is 7.30, it is Sunday and that means it is time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is A.B. Bishop and I would firstly like to say a huge thank you to everybody who donated to our Radiothon a couple of weeks ago. Um, I have to say I'm still getting over it now. Um, It it was a um, whirlwind of a morning to be sure, but um, we raised, the gardening show raised an incredible $13,127. We are $373 shy of our target, which is obviously $13,500. There is plenty of product left, and um, if you want to, please give us a call during the week and buy some product. We still have plenty of books as well and uh, we will be posting those. Later in the show, we'll be chatting with author Lucy Mora about her gorgeous new book, The Kitchen Garden. Uh, But for now, I have the pleasure of introducing a few familiar voices. We've got Evan Gorky from Oka Landscape and uh, Ben Brooker from Treasured Perennials Nursery and somebody who has thrown herself through the door at the very last second, um, a um, slightly jet-lagged but very high on coffee Virginia Haywood. Good morning, guys. (laughs) Good Good morning. morning. Good morning. How is everybody? Good. Everyone okay? Virginia, what's going on? You literally got off the plane and came here? No, I got here... About 12 hours ago. 12 hours ago. Okay. Having had the flight from hell. Oh, is, isn't that par for the course? Sitting on the Malaysian airport in the plane, the pilot said, the engineer has said this plane is not fit to fly, so I'm not <laughs> oh, going to no. fly it. Oh, excellent. That's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we're just about to leave. <laughs> we were. Yeah. Oh, so we goodness. all had to get off. Oh, no. Go through all the security again. Oh. And it was full of people in wheelchairs, so the whole process was so very slow. lengthy. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I, I think there's no occasion when we fly these days when it's not sort of some drama somewhere. Every flight was full, and every airport was chaos. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I was going to go to Italy while I was there, and I just decided I couldn't face Heathrow, so I didn't go. Oh, so where did you go? I went to Ireland for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. I spent quite a bit of time in London because, you know, as you know, I lived there for 20 years, so mm-hmm. there was lots to catch up on. I went up to Norfolk and down to Dorset. All over the place. Yeah. 
Seems like you've been gone for ages. I have been gone six weeks. It's been a long time. Long time. Beautiful. And it was cold most of the time. West coast of Ireland was cold. But west coast of... Is it ever warm in Ireland? No. No. West coast of Ireland, I was in this little but gorgeous town called Westport. And this voice says, Virginia. It was my neighbour from Seville. Oh, how bizarre. (laughs) Stalking you. (laughs) A tiny town in Ireland from a tiny town in Victoria. And and we both know where we're going? No. Oh, Oh, that is totally bizarre. Totally bizarre. Yeah. It was nice. I know um, Chloe Thompson, who comes on the show occasionally, she is over in Ireland as well at the moment. Ireland and, oh, actually, I think she's in France at the moment. Um, So, yeah, everyone's taking the opportunity to head overseas. The planes are so full and the prices have gone through the roof. Mm. For flights? The business class flight when I left is now the economy flight in price. The business class is now the economy flight? Yeah, an economy flight can be $8,000, Oh, okay, okay, I see. Oh, crikey. That's Mm. that's crazy talk. It's shocking. Yeah. Shocking. Mm. Mm. All right, Evan, Mm. how are you? Oh, great, thank you. You're awake? Yeah, I am awake, yeah. Yeah. Good. You've been (laughs) travelling as well? Oh, yeah, we've been doing a little bit just within the country, but we did do a a nice um, couple of weeks uh, up around uh, Mildura and uh, up along the Murray, but the highlight was... um, going on some tours through the Australian Wildlife Conservancy properties mm. of Mallee Cliffs and Scotia uh, with ecologists and, um, uh, you know, staff. Mm-hmm. And it was fantastic. I mean, what a great organisation. We, we've sponsored them for a long time mm-hmm. um, as a family. Uh, and uh, but to get out and you know to get out and see these two was really really good. We first came across them in um, the Kimberley, so we were on the Gibb River Road years and years ago, and uh, somebody said, "Oh, you should go and see if you can get a spot at Mornington." Um, it was about eighty kilometres off the Gibb River Road. So Mornington being a property, a property, not the a peninsula, big old capital, uh, a cattle property, mm-hmm. but, but you know years since it's been a capital. Uh, ca- cattle property and what was amazing is you drove in and you went over a cattle grid and the vegetation immediately changed just it was chalk and cheese mm-hmm. and it was like wow you know i mean we've done a lot of outback travel and and you sort of get used to what the vegetation looks like when you when you go into a place like this that hasn't had cattle in it for such a long time or probably camels yeah, that's right. A lot of ferals. They control a lot of ferals. Um, it's extraordinary mm-hmm. how it changes. Um, and and what's great about AWC is they do a lot of research. So a lot of their money is in research. So they've got a lot of scientists and they do a lot of cat tracking and that type of thing to understand what cats are doing because cats are the big killer. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if Australia didn't have cats, we'd be in a much different place. Mm. Um, so going into Scotia was a little bit the same. So Scotia's sort of uh, between Mildura and Broken Hill and it heads across to the South Australian border and you drive through Cattle Station to get to it and it's the same deal. You go through the fence and the, over the, the uh, cattle grid and the vegetation changes. You have all that middle story. You have a lot of lower story and you, you have a bigger range of age of trees mm-hmm. because the young trees aren't being eaten out. Yeah. Whereas you get into, when you're in the cattle stations, of course, you have old trees that are dying and you don't have a heck of a lot of young trees mm-hmm. coming through. So it's a really different thing. Um, 
At, at Mallee Cliffs, they've built a 38-kilometre feral-proof fence now. So that's actually a, a, a national park, a New mm-hmm. South Wales national mm-hmm. park. But, and so they're releasing a lot of the, a lot of the critters that would have been there. Uh, Scotia's the same. Scotia's really old as, a, as, as one of these organisations. It was, was first started by that Walmsley fellow, you know, who scun a feral cat and stuck it in his head and stood outside Parliament House to try and raise awareness um, for... Um, for for this sort of thing, mm. um, and so that's been fenced for a really long time. But you know they have burrowing betongs and um, uh, uh, little stick uh, nest mice and uh, um, uh, bilbies and all of these things that you just you know were common as muck. Yeah, that just don't really exist anymore. We've did you lost see so the bilbies? many. Yeah, we did see How some bilbies. How amazing are they? They look yeah. like a mythical creature, yeah. don't they? Yeah, and they're, they're tiny. Yeah. They're really tiny, yeah. Very cute. Oh, yeah, fantastic. so we went out at night and saw, saw, saw a few of these critters. But it's just a fabulous organisation. So what's the name of the organisation? It's Australian Wildlife Conservancy, AWC. Yeah, they're doing um, a lot of incredible work around the country. And as they you are. say, creating these environments which are fully cat and fox proof and, mm. and they've got cameras set up um, along the periphery and yep. you, you can actually see when foxes and cats try and get in and they, they can't make it through. Yeah. So with the cattle grid, is there a gate across there as well to stop um, foxes getting in? Oh, so the, their properties vary. They're not all fenced and, and not all of Scotia is fenced. I mean, you couldn't possibly do it or maybe one day they will. Mm. Um, so, no, they, I don't think Mornington is fenced at all actually. Um, but they're doing a lot of fencing in other properties. So yep. they had about four or five million hectares of land under their management. Mm-hmm. And then just recently, they've had agreements with the Northern Australian Pastoral Company, which own five million hectares um, up through Queensland and Northern Territory, and also Bullo River, which is also a, a cattle mm-hmm. station. So they've got these management agreements now, which is kind of cool because it's not all or nothing. It's a very pragmatic approach. Mm-hmm. So they're working with these cattle companies to assess what's on their properties and then assist them to manage the properties to increase the biodiversity. And that's not just animals. That's plants as well. Mm. They, they, they look and as you say, as the well. trees. The trees are so important. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So and it's a win-win, of course, because cattle companies, I guess, can say, "Oh well, you know, we're we're um, being sustainable." And so I think it's a not lot just... of farmers want to be sustainable, but they mm. don't necessarily have the knowledge. And yeah. as soon as they are given the knowledge, they usually mm. are on board for this. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the other interesting things is, you know, if you do do a lot of outback travel, you know, you go about and you think, oh, "Isn't this forest fantastic?" But you don't realise what's missing. No. There's so much stuff that's missing. Mm. Um, and it's not until you go into these properties or you start watching some of their videos on the web. They have great education videos and so on. Um, it's not until you start looking at that that you realise um, what's missing. And so all of a sudden you think, oh, no, the forest isn't as great as I thought it was. It might look okay, but it, but really underlying it's missing a lot of critters. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And cats and foxes, as you say, yeah, are, are, yeah. are one of the, the big determinants there. I've been reading The Call of the Reed Warbler. Mm-hmm. Have you read that? No. That is about, it's a really interesting book and is actually about how to farm, to farm cattle, sheep, and completely change the environment and restore it to mm. what it was pre-white That's fellas. a big read. 
Mm. It is a big room. <laughs> I think I started it about 12 times or got, got past the first page. It's, it's pretty full on. I got yeah. COVID in Ireland, so I started to read it there because oh. I was, you know, captured, Inbound. as it were. Yes, yes. I think that's the only time Perfect. when I would read it, I'd, although I don't want COVID. Uh, look, Absolutely this, not. This is the 3CR Gardening Show. Uh, I'm Amy Bishop, and with me in the studio is Evan Gorky from Oka Landscape, Virginia Hayward from everywhere in the world, and Ben Brooker from Treasured Perennials Nursery. Now, Ben, you're a relative newbie to the show, um, and probably just because I haven't been hosting when you've been on air, so I'm going to take the opportunity to um, chat with you about who you are and uh, maybe give our listeners a bit of a sort of idea as well as to who you are, what you do, etc. So um, you've got Treasured Perennials Nursery. Yes, so... I did start out, um, well, a long time ago, I did start doing, trying to do wholesale nursery with a lot of sort of generic sort of stock, um, but I just didn't find that it was a, a passion that I, I really wanted to sort of follow on to, sort of more follow something a bit different and look for stuff that was a bit more unique. Yep. Um, and so I started basically searching for, for different in rare and unusual sort of plants, um, especially just online and overseas. So yeah, and and we were chatting a bit before the show, and you mentioned that you used to work in retail nursery. So you've got a horticulture background, obviously. By the yeah, so I studied at Charles Sturt University, mm-hmm. um, but then at the same time I was working in a, a retail nursery. This is up in New South Wales. Yeah, it was actually a big nursery, um, and so at the same time I was studying as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even back then, I was I still actually had that interest of trying to find different stuff. So my boss used to send me. Uh, pretty well all over the country to to get different stuff to the nursery. We wanted to be completely different to everybody else. Yeah. So I think that was probably yeah something where I where I started to get more of a passion for unusual things. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And uh, for the radiothon, you and Kerry very generously donated a few plants, which all I'm pretty sure were sold. A few perennials, and um, you brought some in today, which we'll get to later. But why the passion for, um, I suppose, the road less travelled in terms of plants? It's look, I, I find um, uh, it's especially endangered species, uh, which I'm sort of really going into as well. See, so you find that. Uh, with it, especially with a lot of subdivisions and and a lot of grazing animals and that they're really sort of wiping out a lot of our species. So yeah. we're we're sort of trying to yeah just get a a nice collection to sort of yeah bring back these these species. Yeah. So, so. you actually obviously grow them in the nursery to yep. then on sale to the public and and where do you sell them? So we do basically just just the expos. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, I think about four four expos we do mm-hmm. a year. Yeah. So yeah. Beautiful. And at the ones in the Yarra Valley, people say, Ben and Kerry are there. Excellent, yes. Because we all know that those particular things that we thought you couldn't find, like uh, Salvia Patents, for example, the one person who might have them, Who's there is Ben. Yeah. And so we all get excited and we all get there early and rush round and and he's usually at the very end of all so we have to walk past everybody else to find it. <laughs> so that was one I just actually got some C's up of that one. Yeah. Patents. Of patents, yes. Brilliant. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I think um, gonna buy them all. Yeah. <laughs> within the within the industry, so as a as a a designer, 
it it's it's getting more and more and more difficult to use a variety of plants in landscapes. Mm. So we do mostly schools and so on, as you know, and and um, education. So you need reasonable numbers, but mm. it, but not always. You know, it doesn't. You know, you can put things in. And I've had this discussion with nursery people many many times because they'll say, oh, "Where are we going to get that from? Why did you put that on the list?" If I don't put it on the list, and other people don't put it on the list, then it just gets completely forgotten. Mm. So in order to keep that momentum, you have to keep putting different things on the list. Now, I'm not talking about things that are, you know, super out of left field, but, you know, we've had quite a few nurseries closed down, bigger nurseries closed down in the last 10 years that has really affected the variety of plants that you can use. Now, everyone will will know, you know, you don't go through a landscape that doesn't isn't full of lamandra now mm, mm. or whatever it might be. So um, so therefore the skills of designers are also dropping off in their in their uh, the plant knowledge that yep. they have because they're not available. Um, so it's really important that nurseries like this get up and going and promote these unusual plants so that people can start using them. Uh, and designers become aware of them, and so then they get put into landscape designs. Mm. Um, and uh, and and if that doesn't happen, we just get smaller, and our plant palette gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Trees are the same. You know, it's really hard to buy some things that you think would be really common that you just can't get anymore, or tough trees that are just not. Maybe they don't have a perfectly straight trunk. So a lot of a lot of trees are only grown for street trees because that's the big market. For tree growth, so that's fair enough. Mm, mm. But um, you know, so if it doesn't have a straight trunk, it can't be pruned into a straight trunk. Then it doesn't really get a Guernsey. Um, so, which I think yeah. it, it could actually be a feature if you use it right. If, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's what exactly. people don't really understand. Instead of mm. just having this straight trunk that's been supported by a stake for for three or four years, mm. so as soon as you take that stake away, it's just going to fall over. Mm. Uh, having that sort of that disfiguration with the trunk can be a feature absolutely and, and, and if you give it like you know 20 30 years i mean you're not going to see it anyway yeah so well, i think crepe myrtles are a great example of that aren't they i mean yeah the the 50 60 70 year old crepe myrtles you see around town are all multi-trunked mm. and beautiful yeah yeah, yeah. But, mm. the, but any that you see that have been planted in the last 20 years are all going to be straight mm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, I, what i don't unless like you about, chop them off what i don't like about the crepe myrtles is if they keep pruning them every year Mm-hmm. So, because then you just get these long, straight sort of stalks. I think their feature is is their their trunk and their bark and, their, oh, and how twisted they can get. Yeah, yeah. So, and interestingly, yeah. both crepe myrtles and albizia are being trialled at Kew in the country because they think they'll be able to grow there now because of global warming. Oh goodness! Mm, really? Yeah. yeah. So they're actually trying albizia, which I find mm. extraordinary. That's yeah. the Persian silk tree. Oh mm. yeah, mm. That, that is stunning. Actually, a tree I came across recently is um, the Chilean myrtle. You, you probably know it, the Luma apiculata. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Which of course, yeah. for me was had very similar trunk in some respects to the crepe myrtle, mm. um, but um, being in the Myrtaceae family has those. Nice sort of fluffyish white flowers, followed by edible berries. Actually, yeah. You know. See, the funny thing when I first started out, uh, Luma was used as a hedge. Yep, it was a hedging plant all the and time, it, and it was a horrible hedging plant because red spider and so on used to get stuck into it in a, in a city. Um, but as a small tree, 
It is a magnificent small tree, yeah. but again, you don't see it. I know one just in the city that is a that is a lovely uh, tree of about six meters. Ooh, where is it? Um, Can you it's at the Melbourne Club, mm-hmm. and uh, that 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 is a beautiful tree. You know, it's a little bit misshapen just the way it's grown, but I think quite like that. Oh, absolutely, but the trunk trees color, are great. The trunk color is amazing. Yep. So especially um, against the green. The yeah, green, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a, and and. It, you know, small trees are always, you know, we're always looking out for good small trees. Yeah, yeah. And there's not a heck of a lot of good small evergreen trees um, mm-hmm. uh, with interesting bark, and that's that certainly ticks the box. It does mm. tick the box, and yeah. it's it's gorgeous. And, um, I mean, it always comes back to the right plant in the right place, doesn't it? Mm. Very tough plant, though. Yeah. But you've got to think, too, with all, especially with all the subdivisions, that the, the, their properties are actually a lot smaller. So to fit a tree in... And where they're it's not getting harder, lots, harder. And, mm. and the houses are a lot bigger. Yeah, well, they're taking up yeah nearly the it's whole horrible. the whole block. Yeah, mm. yes. Yeah, so, so, so narrow yeah. trees are really um, on the market, aren't they? Because yeah. you're lot you're of, in Druid, aren't you? So, yes. so yeah. it, what what sort of size blocks are you ending up with out there now in the subdivisions? Are they sort of your four fifties square meter blocks? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a variation. So, because we've got a subdivision that's actually close to us, um, and there is part of that which is actually under high residential, and then there's other parts which are actually nearly acre blocks as mm. well, which is part of that same subdivision. Mm. So, it sort of varies, mm. yeah. But then, yeah, I think then when you get further out, the the blocks are sort of that medium sort of size, which can be, I think, around about uh, what nearly six, seven hundred squares. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Now, you and Kerry, I know you didn't drive in from Drew this morning. You spent the night in town and you went to the light show at the Botanic Gardens. How was that? That was actually, it was interesting. It was, yep. Yeah, it was just, it was nice how they've just just lit up the trees. And I think if, if you, Kerry, she pointed out, she goes, if you actually look close enough, you, you can see the layers through the trees. And seeing the layers through the, the, the trees, you, you see the different colours that was actually reflecting off the, off yeah. the, the actual leaves and that. But another thing I noticed too, so you'll find, I, I found was where there wasn't actually a light was close to a plant, you could see the whole vascular system in the actual leaf. So it was quite interesting. So, yeah. How and then also, um, there was a couple of uh, camellias, the light was shining through, and you could see the actual variegation or the deficiency in the actual leaf. So, where normally you'd need to, to run mm. certain. So the test to, to find out if it's actually deficient or if it's got a... And I suppose that quite a few of the camellias are in flower now. They are, yeah. Because yeah. that's an extraordinary camellia collection there. It's one of the best in, in the world, One of the definitely one of the best in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm. It's a really excellent collection of camellias. They started coming in really early mm-hmm. in the development of the gardens because the director's father was the first person to import camellias into... Um, Sydney. Mm-hmm. So there's some really old and rare camellias there. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And are they in? I can't actually remember. There is exactly a camellia, a whole camellia, camellia bed. Yep. But they're also they're round the house. They're round. They're through the Everywhere. gardens yep. as well. Yep. But there is a and they've and they've got a couple of the yellow camellias, which were only discovered by science in the 90s, I think. Mm-hmm. And the yellow camellias, they've got a completely different leaf. They're they're quite beautiful. They come from the mountains in Vietnam. 
Yeah, so because yeah, you should, if they weren't flowering, you wouldn't recognise them as, as a, a chamele- chamele- yeah, no, not at all. No, except yeah. they're in the chamele bed, so yeah, <laughs> it's a giveaway. <laughs> it helps. It helps. Actually, talking about plants not being discovered until later, how's the uh, new giant water lily that they've just I found know. at Kew? It's I... been hiding in plain sight for 177 years, and oh look, we've got a new species of giant water lily, and it is giant. It, I know it's how the it's biggest of the lot, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. Yeah. And and nobody has told us whether it actually exists in the wild or not. Ah, yeah, that, that's a good all point. The, actually. I keep reading yeah. all the reports that keep popping up in the in the British press, and nobody mentions whether it's actually existent in the wild. I mean, because where it's come, it's come out of the you know out of the out of the um, out, out of the stores, as it were. Yeah, somebody and, just had the sense to think we should check these. Yeah, well, as because I was a little bit flummoxed, I was like, how could they not realise that they've got a different species? So it's Victoria, there was Amazonica, and I forget the other one, something yeah, with no. C, and this one's Boliviana. Boliviana. Boliviana the new one is, is Boliviana, obviously from Bolivia. But um, apparently they don't have enough experts. So it wasn't until they got a few people in and they're like, no, hang on, this is slightly different. It's got um, thorns around the edges of mm, the leaves. Mm. And, yeah, so I thought that was pretty <laughs> damn interesting. So, yeah, there's probably lots hiding in plain sight that we don't know about. Well, when you think the the herbarium here has got a collection from that von Mueller bought from some person going through Australia, it's a collection of Brazilian stuff. Mm-hmm. And we've got some of the only proof of some of the plants that have now gone extinct in Brazil that they ever existed, and it's, mm. it's in ours. And our herbarium is in desperate need to be rehoused, rebuilt. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the building's from the 30s and it's beginning to leak and all sorts of things. So there's absolutely – who knows whether there's something in there that's extraordinary. There mm. could well be. Mm. Well, they're actually – Digitalizing the herbarium in Mount Anna, and they they're actually discovering new species because they because there's so much of it there. Mm. They're they're going back and they're, it's dating back like you know over nearly a hundred years. Mm. The the, um, the herbarium is the, some of the the actual paperwork. So and they're actually discovering new new species. It just shows the yeah. volume of stuff that's in these herbariums, and I guess the lack of workforce. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, that they can't actually get through it. Yeah. And, and, you know, they're all dependent on our herbarium is very dependent on volunteers. Mm-hmm. There, there, there's not the horticulture is not taken seriously. We yeah. all know this. And, and as Q was saying, we just, they just don't have the experts to, to come in and be able to ID everything. Mm. So, mm. well, I should get to a few community mm. announcements. So there's a, there's a few on this week. Uh, so we'll just get through these quickly. Uh, This is the Open Gardens Victoria. They've got a couple of workshops on. They're both online via Zoom. Uh, The first one is Rose Pruning, and this is on Saturday the 16th of July from 10.30 to 11.30 a.m. It's a one-hour session followed by question time. And this is with landscape designer Stephen Reid, and he is backed by popular demand to demystify Rose Pruning. If you're a beginner who's keen to learn how to prune roses or perhaps you need a refresher or just some simple motivation to get out and prune your roses, uh, that's $30. And bookings, you can either go to the opengardensvictoria.org.au website or straight to try booking. Um, 
Then we've got uh, Simon Rickard has got his masterclass and it's the final workshop in his series and it's called Winter, A Time of Growth. This is on Thursday the 28th of July from 7.30pm till 9pm, $50. It's a standalone workshop so if you haven't done the others, not an issue. Simon will discuss what happens in our gardens in winter. It's about understanding that winter is actually a time of moisture and growth. He chats about introducing colour and beauty to the garden and gives us a peek into his own winter garden to talk about why he's chosen the plants that he has and how he's combined them. Uh, So I imagine that would be a very valuable workshop to attend or masterclass as we like to call them now. Those days of calling everything a workshop are gone. Everything's a masterclass. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Opens Garden, Open Gardens Victoria also running a competition for um, how you're recycling in your garden Uh, and the competition is judged by our friend Stephen Wells and it's running now until the end of August. It's open to home gardeners only. only. Stephen will be looking for diverse, creative, innovative and fun ways that you have recycled items in your garden. It could be projects you've made from recycled building materials or everyday items you have recycled as quirky planters or used to make interesting garden art pieces. The winner receives a $350 gift voucher from Daisy's Garden Supplies and a runner-up receives a $150 gift voucher from Daisy's. So that's um, the Open Gardens Victoria Recycling in Your Garden competition. Uh, so you can go to their website, um, opengardensvictoria.org.au for more details on that. Uh, The Royal Botanic Gardens of Victoria Cranburn Friends have got their winter plant sale of Australian plants coming up Saturday the 23rd and Sunday the 24th of July from 10am to 4pm on both days. And it's obviously in Cranbourne, corner Bellata Road and Botanic Drive in Cranbourne. Wide range of plants and tubes in tubes and larger pots and gives you the opportunity to have a look around the gardens. Always something going on and in flower. The FJC Rogers Seminar is on again. It's not until October, but it's starting to fill up. It's in Mount Evelyn um, in outer Melbourne, and this time it's about Australian pea flowers. There will be heaps of speakers from interstate and local Uh, Topics include identification, propagation, horticulture, research. There'll be plenty of plants and books for sale. There's a garden bus tour exploring some gardens on the Sunday and it's hosted by the Australian Plant Society Maroondah Group. Uh, So you can um, go to apsvic.org.au forward slash fjc dash rogers dash seminar dash 2022 i'm sure if you just go to the website there'll be um links to get there <laughs> it's a lot, <laughs> it's, it's a lot yes um so on saturday there's lots of lectures and it's 115 dollars, which is damn good value i have to say to hear a lot of experts talking and then there's a dinner on Saturday night for $45, which has got uh, some guests as well. 
now something maybe a little bit left of field. Intrepid Land Care is an organisation that provides a common space to inspire and connect people aged 18 to 30s to do stuff that matters. Intrepid Landcare is no ordinary landcare group. It's an adventurous organisation that empowers young people to take the lead on things that matter to them concerning the environment. It started in New South Wales and now has groups in Queensland, Victoria, WA and ACT. And Gippsland Intrepid is hosting a plant and dance on the 27th of August and there will be Lots of dancing and planting of 3,000 trees. I think this is such a brilliant idea. There's going to be bands, DJs, homemade food and camping. Uh, Tickets are limited. The aim is to increase the amount of native vegetation across the region to help form wildlife corridors. For more details on the plant and dance on the 27th of August or to find out how you can join the group, go to gippslandintrepid.com. Or to find a group near you or start a group, go to intrepidlandcare.org. Yeah, I didn't even know that existed. Sounds fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. So it's an organisation essentially dedicated. It started in New South Wales. A couple of uh, young women who were part of the land care groups realised that um, there wasn't really a lot of younger folk who would come along. So they started um, Intrepid Landcare. And with the aim of bringing more young people in and that these people are also encouraged to start their own groups in in an area if they want to focus on a particular environmental um, challenge, I suppose, in that particular area. You know, you might be rewilding an old section of railway line or gorilla planting with indigenous plants or anything like that. Uh, they, They will be able to sort of... Um, offer moral support and um, and give you advice on how to encourage people to join your group. So I think it's a fabulous idea. Mm. So, yes. So this is the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Abby Bishop and I'm in the studio with Ben Brooker from Treasured Perennials Nursery, um, Virginia Hayward from Everywhere and Evan Gorky from Oka Landscape. So... Yes, we should maybe get to a couple of your plants, Ben. Yeah, so we've actually got a new one that's just starting to come online for us. It's mm-hmm. a uh, plant called Pinus Stacking. It uh, also actually had the name changed to uh, Coleus, so it's uh, so but it's known more as Pinus Stachia. So it's actually it's very similar to like a like a salvia sort of type of flower, mm. but it's in a very sort of type sort of conical shape. Um, you find that uh, the, the the new shoots are square, mm-hmm. so you find that it's in that Lamiaceae family. Um, but it's, it, it's a very blue blue. Yeah, but it starts off the, as the flower bud starts off as that nice maroon colour, and then as the, the flower ends up, it goes blue. But then, following after the actual flower, you'll see that you'll get some really nice sort of they look sharp, but nice sort of soft spikes, which protects the actual. Uh, seed pod, mm-hmm. and it's so, sort of it's yeah. budding its way down, so it flowers sequentially. Does it down the stem by the look of it? It does, yeah. So yeah. you get a really long you do. flowering period. Out yeah, of but it is one. It actually does. Um, it does like a, more sun than shade. Uh, the only thing it doesn't like is it doesn't like frost. So mm-hmm. we actually we do get frost where we are. Mm-hmm. So we've picked a spot that's a very well lit area, 
uh, which is just basically under a, uh, a nice um, peppercorn tree mm-hmm. that we've got. So it gets a little bit of midday sun, um, protected from the afternoon and morning sun, so, yeah, so the frost doesn't settle on it. So is it so an evergreen? It is an evergreen, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, But you find, so in the cooler months, you find that you can see they look like um, the, the, the actual bracts, so they're really a nice sort of purpley, sort of pinky sort of tinge. Mm. And how coming. big does it get? Then? So it does get to about two metres. Um, but we'll keep ours down to around about a metre to a metre and a half. So, and then usually you sort of come autumn, we'll just let it grow, let it flower, and then when it starts to warm up again, we'll prune it back down. So, kind of, so I imagine it looks a little bit like a buddleia, does it, the way it grows up? Is it, does it? Does it grow up very upright? Yeah, it does. It's very, it is very upright. It's very yeah. quite, yeah, it stands sort of quite strong, actually. And the name um, again? It's called Pinostachy, uh, but it's actually had a name changed to, to Coleus. So, Coleus. Yeah. Coleus, yeah. Like so, in Plectranthus, yeah, Coleus. Yeah, yeah, so It doesn't look actually, anything like a Plectranthus. Nothing like it, yeah. So <laughs> the actual common name is actually, it's called, it's a hedgehog sage. Hedgehog so, sage. Yeah. I've heard and it about is, this. Yeah. Yes. And it does come from, from Africa and Madagascar. So, mm. yeah. But in, in, the, in the growing season, the, the leaf is actually really nice sort of dark, dark green leaf. So at the moment you can see it's actually that sort of nice sort of pale green. Mm. So you look at it and you think, okay, why has that not become a popular plant? Yeah, absolutely. It's a fabulous flower. Yeah, you don't see it. No, yeah, so, so, so why, why is it? Do you Ben's bringing it back. Ben and Jerry are bringing it <laughs> no, back. No, I just yeah. always find it really interesting yeah. because does it look terrible in a pot? You know, that, that's that's, 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 that's a yeah. really common yeah. one. Or does it have some foibles? You know, yeah. like can it, it transport easily? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Well, I think certainly it wouldn't. You wouldn't be able to grow it in a pot. I think it would get too leggy. Like mm-hmm. I think it would grow in a pot, but it'd only be for, not happily. For, yeah, not happily. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it's the frost. So mm-hmm. I think that's its biggest downfall. Well, which so, we don't really have in Melbourne no, anymore. But, which <laughs> well, I think it'd be perfect, perfect, perfect for Melbourne. We did have, have them last year, but we've had about three this year. Yeah, you're out in the sticks, though. We are, but still. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> hey, I realise I forgot to give the numbers for people to call. So if you feel like um, joining in the conversation or asking a question, uh, please give us a call on 94190155 or you can text us on 488 809 We can't receive um, photos via that text, but by all means, text in your questions. So, so that plant, you would put it at the back of a bed, would you? Does it look a bit ordinary when you cut it back? Is it the sort of thing you'd put at the back of the bed and then let it come up and do its thing above everything? Yeah. Or I is th- it something you'd put standalone? Yeah, standalone. I think it's still because where we've where we've planted it does stand alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got just a lot of small perennials which are sort of around underneath it, um, because we wanted that to be more of a feature. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I think even as a, a back background, because then you, you can actually have it sort of tower mm. really over the top of everything, mm. everything else, um, and then sort of prune it back down to level where everything like your, your front bordering plants are. Mm. And yeah. if I plant this. I lose things. I've, I haven't been home yet, but I so I don't know what's happened this year. But I tend in the last sixteen years, I've only lost heliotrope to frost. Mm. Everything else gets bit knocked, but then comes back. So, do you think this would work at my? Because the frost rolls off the hill with me. She's putting it in her pocket. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. can I propagate it? Very, you've Get got, your wallet out, Virginia. Yeah, you've right. got um, that brilliant Asia. So I'd, exactly I'd, same conditions right. as Brilliantasia. So I so, would get it through. Yes. 
Yeah. Because so. I think it's rather beautiful. So d- does it literally flower all the time? It kind of looks like that sort of thing or not? No, it starts in autumn um, okay. and it, it, it'll go right through winter. Yeah. yeah. And finish so, up through spring. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. So, because, because I've still got new flowering shoots. If you look at some of these spikes that I've got, you can mm. see how it's got the different stages. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. it yeah. looks like it's got months to go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It has so, quite uh, long internodes between the the leaf grouping so does it become quite leggy or does it stay that's why we prune it yeah Yeah. so you keep it prune it down yeah um but when in the growing season it is quite um it is quite compact yeah yeah so Mm. it's just when it's actually getting to flower Mm -hmm. that sort of sends out all this growth i would describe the flower as like a a, um red hot poker shape yeah so you know that's sort of yeah but smaller and and a brilliant blue but it It is is that shape it's very much a cone yeah but when you look closely at the flower you think it's a salvia Mm, yeah, yeah. Mm. but uh, until you mm. look at the leaf, oh, that's a, yeah. that's a fabulous <laughs> leaf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's the spikes that follows on after it. Mm. So, which is actually a feature. So, when it, the flower's completely gone, you have this like this this cylinder of these, these little spikes, mm. and, which is actually protecting the actual seed capsule. And, and um, so. drought, or, or, and so on. Like, what's it like? Does it need plenty of water? Or no, is it's there... a, it is reasonably drought tolerant. Yep. Yeah. So. It's. Uh, I don't think it's a fussy plant. So I think when you first plant something like this, I think you, you need to make sure the first summer is there is adequate moisture hmm. um, just until they sort of get their roots down and, and established. Hmm. How did so, you come across it? Uh, seed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so just importing seed. Yep. So this, we did this a long time ago and, and uh, yeah, so we're just going mad, just putting seed down at the moment. So, yeah. Yeah. That's how we try to... Including salvia patients. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've been experimenting with... with Propagating with seed, so I'm actually using a lot of smoke water on on everything, and I'm actually getting a, a lot faster germination rate than normal. Mm. So, so instead of actually having optimal temperatures to to uh, to break the cycle of, of germination uh, by using the smoke water, it's it's sort of really activating the and stimulating the the, the actual shooting. Mm. So, yeah. do you keep records of everything that you do and say, okay, well, these guys have germinated in three weeks quicker than these ones over here, and I use we use smoke water, we put them in blah blah environment. No, normally in the back of my head. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, no, because I normally yeah, as long as I got, they're all labelled. Yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah. usually sort of know what how long they've been there for. Because I was chatting with our friend uh, Sue. And uh, Sue Stevens, who's a uh, master propagator. Um, sure and is. She, oh my goodness, the knowledge that woman has got, not only in her head, but she writes everything down mm. and she can tell you every plant, um, what, what the treatment is. She does a lot of cuttings and she can literally tell you how much hormone to use, when to, when to do it, like she was propagating uh, uh, crowias and um, one of the Australian small shrubs. And she said she just sort of sat there and sat there in the glass house, didn't die, or the poly house didn't die, but didn't grow. And then come spring, it just went bang. And that's how she realised that you only bother propagating it in spring, whereas Mm. others will sort of put on a little bit of growth. But boy, oh boy, does (laughs) she have the knowledge. Mm. Yes. It's great that she writes it down. She, yeah, so yeah. maybe it can be shared in the future. I keep saying we've got to she's, do a book on her. Yeah. Her she's extraordinary. Is insane. G-bung. 
you know, she has propagated that when everybody else has struggled. The pursuing your pinafolia, yeah. yeah. Has struggled yeah. and struggled, but Sue managed. Yeah. So what's the real tricky one of that one? That's, that's Newton's, isn't it? That's the real tricky one. Well, I think mm. pinifolia is tricky as well. And yeah. apparently it germinates, seed germinates readily, but can't be transported. So as soon as you try and fiddle mm. with it. And that that's actually one of the things, because I was chatting to her um, about an article I was doing on propagating natives from cuttings, and she was saying natives compared to exotics really don't like having their roots filled with. So she sort of eliminates that um, by put planting into peat pots and then being able to plant move directly, the whole pot, yeah, yeah, move the whole pot rather than potting and it. And one up. of the things that's so good mm. is she still propagates a lot of exotics as well. Yeah. So she's, you know, she she keeps that all that information in her head about and something will happen with a, a difficult salvia and she'll think, oh, that's interesting. Maybe that'll apply too. You know, yeah. she's, she's so um, inquisitive. Oh, she mm. is. Yeah, absolutely. No, we need, I keep saying we need to get it out of mm. your head, Sue. We, we need to do a book on you. Yeah, yeah I was in a, a nursery a while ago, um, a tree nursery, and I was asking, it turned out they were growing their own brachychitin from seed and I had collected some brachychitin from a roadside in central Queensland on the way up to Cape York a year ago and I thought oh, I need to know how to propagate these things and you know it turns out they're really easy but they were propagating them they were putting three into these small rocket pots mm. they're they're about 100 mil across and about 200 deep so um and they they were leaving them in those so propagate them put three seed in let you know pick the best and then grow it directly in there. There was no moving them, no mm. pricking them out or moving them. Mm. Yeah, um, and then they get their depth because they do throw quite deep roots down straight away. Um, so that was that was really interesting. I've got six to germinate. I'm very excited. Excellent. Yeah. And are you going to be planting them at your place? Uh, I'll, I'll be planting one at my place mm-hmm. and I'm um, not sure where the others are going, but... Um, yeah, no, they're they're just fantastic trees. Two good homes. Yeah, they're a they're a type of popuneus, mm-hmm. but they have like a um, maple leaf as they get older. So some have different juvenile leaves to they do, uh, yeah. and mature leaves, and some go the opposite way. This one, as it turns out, is looking very much like a regular popuneus, but the mature tree we got it off very much has a um, a, a palmate leaf. Yeah, very, so, yeah, very interesting. Really interesting. Yeah. Beautiful big tree. Be good to see how it, how it goes at your place. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I might use one as an indoor plant too. They're quite quite good for that. Yeah, got to got to experiment. I have to say. Mm. All right, let's go to Jeff in Ashburton. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Amy, and good morning, everybody else. Um, I'm ringing in because next Saturday between ten and two in Ashburton, uh, we're going to have a winter warmer working bee to help plant some native ground covers and learn about uh, local food forest and stuff for the food forest in Ashburton. And uh, if people register, and that's a bit of a complicated website, but I'll have a go at it, they end up being able to have uh, free uh, tea, coffee and hot soup and stuff like that. Um, But the basic website is for the Craig Family Care, and so it's Craig FC... C-R-A-I-G-F-C dot org dot au 
And then you end up having this sentence, winter, warmer, working bee, food, forest, (laughs) 16-J-U-L, all with each with a dash between .html. That that does sound a little bit convoluted, but I'm sure if people go to craigfc.org.au, they would be able to find it. Oh, that's true. Yes, I've been thinking about that. Especially if they then go to winter. Yeah. Uh, winter warmer working bees. So, what so what what are you actually doing there, Jeff? Well, You're planting we, we ground we, covers. We activated my wife activated this food forest about twelve years ago, and they ended up uh, putting it in. And then we ended up having a big thing back in two thousand and nineteen to generate interest to have a proper support group. But then that thing called COVID came along, <laughs> so there's only two left of people: my wife and one of her close uh, friends who actually look after at the moment. I mow around all the sort of discovery trails for the kids because it's right next to a kid's playground. And uh, basically it's a food forest. So you have uh, all these food trees and you have all the understory to it. It's not a uh, vegetable garden as such. And so these are basically ground native ground covers and to encourage all the local insects and things to come in and be part of the process as well. Oh, fantastic. What trees do you have there, Jeff? Well, I know we've got macadamia and mm-hmm. I know we've got mulberry and I know we've got persimmon and I'm not the specialist. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. So, so it's an actual forest on, well, forest dish on public land? It's on public land. It's below Solway Primary School, which is in Ashburton South. Uh, just before you get to Gardner's Creek, you go down the hill in Winton Road and it's on, there's a little playground and immediately adjacent to the playground we've now got a shelter that we put in place so people can uh, have a nibble under cover if it's raining or whatever it might be and, and basically the food forest has uh, been put in there and being maintained. But Fabulous. How many trees are there, Jeff? Oh, they'd have to be 20 to 30. <laughs> and, and so um, public can go along and help themselves to oh, yeah. the, the fruit? Thing is if, if people come along and want to take something, they just don't strip everything off. Yeah. <laughs> share a, and share alike. It's called a fair go system, you know. Yeah, how fabulous. What, what a and great so, idea. And, yeah, and so there's, I mean, things that we do have uh, in the, at the ground level, we have rhubarb. <laughs> Is one of the things that keeps growing. Yeah. So, they, they, so perennials go in uh, as well to some degree uh, in that sort of area. But it's it's a really uh, important idea for what councils are going to do to actually help generate food within Melbourne. And we actually need little food forests all over the place. Uh, Absolutely. Because people no longer have backyards. That's absolutely right. And I know food forests are very popular in America and Europe. Uh, there's a lot of public land which is given over to um, these types of plants. So well, that's such a great idea and good on you and your wife for starting that up. So you're, well, no, you you're, have to say it's my wife who did okay, it. Okay, okay. 95% plus. Your admin support, which is very, which is very good. So you've got your working bee next Saturday. Yeah, uh, 10, 10 o'clock till 2. Okay. And, 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 and it's called Winter Warming Working Bee Food Forest-16-July. dash July. Uh, J-A-U-L, no Y, craigfc.org.au is the basic website. Yeah, Craig FC, so that's the Craig Family, family Care. Family like Care. That, that stands for that, .org.au. And, and you're going to be planting ground covers next week. It's 
native yeah, native ground covers and, and talking to each other. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Native so people principles. Yeah, sure. So people bring their own tools, that sort of thing, and gloves. Uh, no, they think people bring. Oh yeah, bring a basic uh, a fork and all those sort of little basic things. Yeah. And, uh, uh, apart from that, bring a cup, your own own cup for having your hot coffee in. Beautiful. It's not going to be uh, take. Not going to be throwaway cups. Fantastic. Good on you, Jeff. Oh, it sounds sounds fantastic. So that's the Ashburton Food Forest. Oh, yeah. Food Forest Ashburton. Food house, Forest Ashburton. Beautiful. Well, well, good luck with it, Jeff, and hope you get a few people down there. Okay. Thank you for that- listening to all of that. That. Thanks very much. Oh, good on you, Jeff. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. That is an excellent initiative. Oh, why don't we have them everywhere? Isn't I think it? it's good if we get younger people doing it too. So yeah, that way you get they might find their their passion in horticulture. Yeah, and yeah. they'll be able to see trees grow and mature and where, so where much, food comes from. Yeah, yeah, yeah and I yeah. so much notice that that is the way in now. People younger people coming through growing food. Mm. Mm. It's yeah. Yeah, it's become popular, hasn't Very it? Very popular. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah, they, they can branch out. Yeah. So mm. if they want a certain field, succulents or yeah, yeah natives or... There was yeah. no dancing at that event, though. No, that yeah. is disappointing. But who knows? <laughs> there might be. Like, someone could come along, bring their... Bit of music. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right, what else is going on? Virginia, did you... You didn't bring a plant in because you've just... No, I've no. just fallen off a plane. <laughs> but Ben's, Ben's got, like, a dozen plants Ben's, here. Yeah, so. He does, yeah. Let's let's work our way through Rock a couple through. of them. They're so blue interesting. One. Yeah, so that's that one's called uh, Lacanalia vera de flora. Uh, flora. I think um, that is beautiful. Yeah, so this actually comes from the uh, Cape Province in 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 South Africa. Um, it was only I think it was only discovered I think in in the nineteen sixties. So yeah, and it actually yeah it grows in like granite. So it sort of really thrives in in those really sort of harsh harsh conditions. So, but it, the flower is that nice sort of that turquoise colour. So it's, it's an it's amazing. An, blue, it's an unusual right? colour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is a threatened species in, the, right. in its natural environment. So, mm. um, I do know there's a few growers here in Australia that do grow this particular species. Um, so it is in cultivation. So it's growing so, in well-drained, gravelly sort of soils naturally. Is that it? Is yeah, it's growing yeah, in, yeah, in heat. Yeah, so but even still, like I grow mine in a general potting mix. Um, just during in summer when it dies back down, we, we sort of keep it in a more of a dry condition. Mm. Um, but it does handle, yeah, the, 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 the heavier soils as well. Mm. So, so you haven't created <clears throat> specific beds with different sort of soil in your area, or you have? No. So we we were on a bit of a slope, so we can sort of pick where our wet spots are and where our dry spots are. Um, some parts of the, the property, the, the soil is a little bit starved as well. Mm-hmm. So those particular spots, I tend to sort of pick a lot of those, you know, the species like the, the Lacanalias or mm-hmm. Masonias and especially those sort of arid sort of type of plants, mm-hmm. yeah, for those areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, so, and this Lacanalia, this is something that if people come along to the fair... That, yeah, that's... this one, I've pollinated this one, um, so this, hopefully I should get seed off it this year. Mm-hmm. So I do actually have a few in the nursery, so it will be available probably for the, the Yarra Valley Plant Fair in autumn. So, yeah, it's something that won't be available probably in spring. You'll be at the spring one though, won't you? Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. So we've got a lot of lot of new stuff coming on in, in, in all the, the, the expos that are coming up. Mm. Um, but, yeah, this one here, we, it, 
we're going to say definitely in autumn. Um, so it, is that a bulb? It uh, is a bulb, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and that will just slowly multiply and spread or how? Yeah. So that, yeah. Ve- I've not really noticed it actually bulb up. It hasn't. Okay. I've not seen any off, offshoots of it yet. So uh, normally with this, I, I just do it from seed. Mm. Yeah. So, but it's one of the. It's actually pollinated. I think pollinated in, in the wild. I think from a sunbird. So a little type of honey eater. Mm. So, but yeah, I get a little tooth, a little paintbrush and just yeah. <laughs> it's the most pollinated. extraordinary colour. Yeah. That, that turquoise blue is mm. really unusual. Well, the only other colour is the ixia. Is a, is exactly another, what I was yeah. just thinking yeah, about. Yeah. And there's the two ixias. There's mm. the duck egg blue. Yep. And then there's the wild one, which is a deeper, deeper. Which is a bit blue. harder to grow. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I, it, that grows at my place. Yep. And it's absolutely beautiful. But yeah. that that it's that colour, the same mm. colour as the ixia, which is also South African, is it not? It is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, can you remember when the flare? When the flare? When the fair is? Uh, November. It is November. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the one in Macedon the first weekend in October. So we, our first one starts in at Yay, and that's on the uh, the seventh and eighth of September. Um, and then after that, there's the Bollybeck or out out at Mount Macedon, which is the first and second of October. Uh, then there's Lardner Park, which is out near close to home, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the eighth and eighth and ninth of October. And then we go to Yarra Valley uh, Plant Fair, which is in the fifth and sixth of November. That's oh, a busy schedule. Yeah, yeah. So can you repeat the name of that? Because people will have probably missed it. So it's called Lacanalia viridiflora. So, and the uh, common name for that one is, I think, just the Cape Cowslip. Yeah. Mm. And oh, Lacanalia is, is L A C H for people who want to look it up. Yeah, E N A L I A. Yeah. Mm. Gorgeous. Yeah. Actually, it looks, um, the, the colour is like the new kangaroo paw as well. Wow. Really? Yeah, yeah. There's a they've got a, a new range of blue kangaroo paws. One of them masquerade, which is that identical colour. That sort of. Yeah. And is it going to be really hard to grow? Uh, you grow it in a pot. Is the answer to that? So yeah, because I've got a lot really of them. Good I've got a lot of them in the ground at mm-hmm. my place, and they're quite happy. The tall ones. Tall ones. Yeah, the tall I've ones never will grow to, anywhere. I've never succeeded in growing the small ones. Yeah, well, the mm. little ones are almost um, potted colour in a way. You'll get yeah. a couple of years out of them, and, and, and people sort of get very despondent when they die thinking they've done something wrong, and they haven't done anything wrong. It's just they naturally die off over that time. Uh, we just have them in a pot or The other way is, is um, after a couple of years, you just dig them up, pull them apart. Oh, so certainly so. the big ones. I'm not sure with the small ones if that would actually. Yeah, um, we do it with ours. Do you? Yeah. Which, which yeah. ones do you do that way? So we do. There's a pink one. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember the names. Bush of the, pearl or something. Yeah, bush pearl. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's also like a, a real pale pink to nearly like a white. Yeah. So yeah, we do that. Okay. Well, that's every, good to know. Yeah. So we just dig it up. Dig them up yeah, and divide yeah. it up. Oh, right through the summer. Uh, doesn't really. I don't really matter when really? we do that one. Yeah, mm. so I think the growing season is the best time to do it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Mm. All right. Well, let's go to Miriam and Croydon. Hi, Miriam. Good morning. Thanks for your show. Really learn a lot from it. Oh, good. How can we um, help you? Um, we've got some bare-rooted fruit trees. We'd like to plant in the next couple of weeks, and just wanting some advice on preparing the holes and. Um, yeah, how to best do that. Which which sort of fruit trees have you got, Miriam? Uh, we've got 
some stone fruit, some, um, we've got a mulberry and a couple of peaches, a nectarine and an apricot. And they're dwarf on dwarf fruit stock. Mm, nice. Well, I always think it's good to be, dig as, as wide as whole as you can, you know, and really prepare that soil and get some, get some well-rotted manure and Compost. so on through mm. it. Um, mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily need to be deep and you just want to be careful about putting organic material too deep. Uh, and then you just make a cone in the middle and put the the roots down around the cone. That's how I plant bare-rooted trees. Um, and right. it just sort of spreads them out down through and then just backfill fill lightly and a bit of um, sea sole or something like that and um, keep the water up to them and make sure the rabbits don't get to them. I find um, also you'll find... Uh, a lot of those fruit trees absorb a lot of their nutrients through the the stem, so uh, you'd be best to even probably even foliar spray the actual stem with a bit of trace elements. Right. Yeah, trace elements you can buy pretty well from most garden centres. So if you just mix that up to the recommendations, um, yeah. and then just foliar spray the actual stems because they they've got a lot of uh, um, what they call linosaurs, which is like a uh, an open pore, um, and it'll actually soak into into the plant that way. So, which is a real pro- better way of fertilising it. I had no idea. Yeah, no, 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 so the no, best thing I find with that, when they before they fruit, is to uh, spray foliar spray with borum. So borum is actually one of the key key elements to to uh, promote the the fruit. So, uh, mm. but yeah, to, just spray the stems. Mm. Even on fairly advanced trees. Yep. Oh, yep. wow. Yeah. I'll try it on my persimmon. Yep. I don't know why I bother. My dog eats more of a persimmon <laughs> than I ever managed yeah. to get. But you've got to use por- uh, boron. boron. Boron for fruit. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Miriam, yeah. what sort of, I mean, you're in Croydon, so you have relatively heavy soil, I'd imagine. Yes, although where we're planting them has previously um, been a, uh, a garden bed that had a lot of perennials in it, which we're relocating and um, we did have some other fruit trees, but they just got so big. And my husband did a, um, a workshop with root leaves and seeds, I mm-hmm. think they were, yeah. a pruning one. <coughs> and um, had the advice that probably the root stock was um, one that wasn't... They weren't dwarfs. They were just getting so high and netting them was really difficult mm. and pruning them and keeping them compact. So, And the, the thing you need to do is start your pruning early. You know, don't start pruning when they're six years old already mm. and yeah, they're right up. Yeah. Absolutely. And you have to think about pruning in terms of picking. Yes. Yeah. Even pruning them when they go in, because often they're sold really tall mm. and you're actually better off to halve them yeah. uh, when you plant them. So be brave. Okay, okay, mm. yes. Mm. Now, did you say foliage spray? Did you? F-O-L-I-A-G-E? Foliage. Yeah, yeah, it's just the terminology. Yeah, so you, you, you'll mix the, the, your, your fertiliser up in a, a spray bottle. Yeah. Um, especially with trace elements. If you, if you use trace elements, let it sit overnight. So it actually, a lot of the nutrients does dissolve quite... Um, quite slowly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then do it. it the, and the best time to do it is uh, early in the morning or late in the afternoon. So because if you do it during the, the warm part of the day, a lot of those uh, pores are, are closed. Uh, so yeah. it, it's not going to... It's just pretty well just going to dry up and run off. Or um, So if you do it 
early in the morning or late in the afternoon? So even though it's called foliage spray, we're spraying the stems, are we? The branches and the, the trunk and the stems. Yeah. And that's, that's with the trace elements. So we plant them and then spray the, prune the bit of the height off and then spray them with the trace elements. Yep. And then when they're, um, they've got all their leaves and they've started, the blossoms come and everything... Is that the point where we then spray them again with boron or? No, boron you want to do um, just before they fruit. So uh, I, I think the trace elements is actually going to help build the immune system up, give the plant its nutrients that it actually needs to to stimulate new growth um, and, you know, and start growing. So because initially, see, being uh, bare-rooted, it's been lifted. So it's actually going to be under a bit of shock. Yeah. So yeah. you've got to provide those nutrients to sort of get that plant to back to its original state where it's nice and healthy. Um, right. So, but the following year, um, I'd recommend just use boron uh, to, to to use as a foliage spray before any foliage, uh, before oh. the just well, even when they start flowering, um, is probably a good indicator to to actually start doing the the boron. But don't use too much of it. So. Um, you don't want to sort of apply boron and then a week later or two weeks later apply it again because then it becomes more toxic. So yeah. you only probably only want to do maybe one or two applications uh, a year with the boron um, right. because it only needs a small amount. It doesn't need a very huge amount of boron. Same um, with all your trace elements. Yeah. They, they are trace elements. They don't need... Yeah. Yeah, huge amounts like we tend to give plants nitrogen, potassium, etc. Which is misused, I think, yes. especially nitrogen. So we over we over fertilize. We do well. It's more nitrogen is misused because that's what actually blocks a lot of those trace elements. So if there's too much nitrogen or not enough nitrogen, then a lot of those trace elements don't become available to the actual plant. Um, uh, probably. Oh, that's very helpful. Yeah, and the, but in the growing season, um, then you can do the foliage spray. Um, Probably calcium is really good um, because calcium is a really slug mineral. So it actually doesn't, it, it's there in the soil, but it doesn't move very quickly, especially throughout the plant. Um, so that's probably something like a dolomite. You actually do mix that up in a bit of, more, uh, bit of water and, and spray the foliage with that as well. Um, and then you can yeah, use your, your dynamics and all that sort of stuff, like put that on the ground as for your, your nitrogens and your potassiums and your phosphoruses. So. Oh, Yep. Nice. Okay, so the dolomite is calcium, isn't it? Yeah. It is, yes. So yeah. they, Tomatoes like calcium too. Yeah, actually, yeah. You, with tomatoes, if you put, go and buy a packet of aspirin, aspirin, and if you've got a little five-letter, just drop one or two uh, tablets in it and spray your, um, your tomatoes with the aspirin. Won't have a headache. <laughs> That's it, no. But it actually, it's got the, was that salic, uh, salic, Silic acid, yeah. so it uh, helps to sort of foliate, uh, so or chelate, sorry, uh, a lot of the nutrients, and mm. it stimulates a lot of the bacteria around the actual plant. Yeah, right. so, oh, that's yeah. very fabulous! Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, good good luck with your fruit trees, Mary. Ring ring back in a couple of months and and brag about your harvest. Oh well, yeah, yeah, okay then. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much. Good on you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. Lots of good tips, Ben. Yeah, there's more to that. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. Uh, yeah, so we are the 3CR Gardening Show and we're chatting with Ben Brooker, Virginia Hayward and Evan Gorky. If you would like to give us a call with a gardening question, 
give us a call on 94190155 or you can text us on 0488 809 855. Excellent. Very good. Yeah, can I just say I've got this plant hanger here that I promised a, a friend of mine that I would talk plant about. Plant hanger, yes. So beautiful. this is an old, this is a modern version of an old idea to hang pots. Um, so to put in the house, you know, house plants are very popular these days, and you can, you, you essentially just slot the, the the pot up into there and then sit it down. And so it's a very fine idea, and it's aluminium, so it doesn't. It won't rust. Ah, so it gets screwed into the wall, and then just you just hang it onto a onto a onto oh, a screw. Onto a hook. Yeah, so okay, depending really on how in, big the plant is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So really good inside. So the idea is you actually put the screw in the wall first, mm-hmm. now, Evan, and then slot the pot in on an angle, and then you put it up onto the wall. Can I suggest you take a photo of that and put it on our Facebook page? Uh, well, or send it to Liz. Okay, Liz I can do does, that. Liz does our <laughs> socials, and she'll put it up for you. I can do um, that, so that yeah. people don't have to try and work out what on earth we're talking about. Yeah. But so yeah, you know, people order. like to hang pots on fences as well, and uh, this is just a really nice way of doing it because it's a little bit sleeker mm-hmm. than than what um, other ones is. I think I'll just say I think the the website is Kindness Street. Mm-hmm. Kindness Street, and it's called the Hanger. And does it come in other colours? No, comes in white, white, it or white. Looks like you could very easily spray that. You, in you about could thirty seconds. It's been powder coated, and it's powder coated aluminium, so mm. it is going to last forever, which is yep. one of the other great things because a lot of those old po- co- uh, hangers are made out of mild steel, and so they eventually just rust away. Yeah. Um, but with all the modern sort of um, decorative pots now, fairly straight sided ones, they sit in it really nicely, yep. and you can bend it out a little bit if you need to get a bigger pot in there, but. Um, yeah, called the hanger. Kind of cool little modern spin on the old plant hanging pot. Does it have a weight sort of restriction? Like what would oh, you go up to? Oh, it would take. I mean, it's only really going it's to little. fit a squat pot, yeah, uh, a six-inch pot or a squat eight or something like that. So, so yeah, no, it'll it'll it'll, it'll take plenty. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you could have a big succulent hanging out of it that weighs a few kilos. That would yep. be fine. Yeah. So it's kindness street. One word. So kindness is which is what we all should be doing to each other, <laughs> kindnessstreet.com.au. Yeah. yeah, so I think it's a really nice thing. Very good. Well, while you're um, chatting, why don't you tell us about your eel trap? Oh, our latest eel trap. Yep. Yeah, look, we got phoned up because we made this really cool one in, in Geelong in front of a, a childcare centre, which um, is really a replica I remember that. Yeah, so it's really a replica one, um, uh, but large that children can walk through it. Um, and so uh, at the um, First Nations representative for Barwon Health saw that and, and, and approached us because they were building a new uh, facility for um, younger people who have had trauma and uh, so they were wondering if we could put one at the front of this facility at Barwon Health. Uh, so it's it's a little bit different. It's bigger because it's to allow electric wheelchairs through. Mm-hmm. And she helped with um, the drawing of an eel to go on the base of it. So because it had to have wheelchairs through, it needed a flat floor. So it's got um, uh, Corten steel, uh, which has been laser cut out. And then in those laser cut cutouts... They're stainless steel, so the eel is drawn essentially in stainless steel through the floor. Uh, and it's got a, a poem cut through the floor as well with 
which Barwon Health wanted to put in there because it's encouraging people to 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 keep trying, you know, to keep moving on because uh, it's difficult, obviously, for younger people, anybody that's experienced trauma. Um, and yeah, look, it's just been a fabulous thing, um, and uh, hopefully, it, it says everything it needs to say. It's sort of got colourful um, perspex in the top of it that that flicks down so it looks as though it's sitting underwater um, and it's got a lovely seat at the end and so on so people can go in and actually sit in it or they can use it as part of the entry to get into the into the building. Um, and do you grow plants up it? Um, we don't um, because we really want to keep the sunlight mm-hmm. around it. Mm-hmm. So um, it is a new building so there was a landscape architect that obviously did did some planting around it. Put Lamandra around. Uh, there is some Lamandra. <laughs> <laughs> some Lamandra and Poa. Yeah. Um, but, that, you know, that'll look okay once it sort of all, all blends through. Um, but, yeah, we wanted the sunlight coming down because we have those coloured perspex bubbles all over the top that sort of reflect down onto the floor. So it's nice to have the, have the sun. I actually made the timber seat. It's a really organic seat out of a lemon-scented gum that nearly fell down at home years ago and I had it cut down and uh, had it slabbed up. So the seat is made out of uh, my old lemon-scented gum timber at the, at How the end. How divine. Yeah, yeah, it's lovely. A lot of good stories in the one thing. Isn't that fabulous? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. garden art as well as being practical mm. and having lots of stories to tell. Yeah, and it's also displaying the engineering skills of the First Nations people. The eel traps are a fabulous thing. And eel traps were and fish traps were built all around the world, yeah. not just here. They, the Americans, First Nations, did it as well. Um, so, you know, that sort of basket weaving uh, out of reeds and those sorts of things. I just think it's wonderful to open people's eyes to the, the, the skills. Yeah. That, that were were that were utilised. Yeah. Yeah. So yep. that's part of the process of, of of making these things. Where is it? It's in Barwon Health in uh, Geelong. In Geelong in itself. Carayo. Carayo. So is yeah. it open to the public? Can yeah, people yeah. go and have a look at it? Yeah, you could yeah. go in and uh, go into the medical, uh, into the hospital area and find a park and, and find your way to the trauma area. Yeah. I yeah. Presume... It's actually a nice garden in there too, an older garden mm-hmm. within that hospital. I presume you could also put a photo of this to, <laughs> to Liz to put up. I, with a little bit of help from yeah, my friends, I'm sure I can. The eel traps. Sounds, sounds good. You can yeah. make an incredible eel trap, but socials are not your thing. <laughs> Which right. is not true because you've got I a do good do an Instagram. Instagram. Uh, yeah, but do I don't use per- it very often. Do you personally do it? Um, it was set up by somebody else, yes. Yeah, All, right. All right. So let's go to Norma in Keylor. Good morning, Norma. Good morning to everybody. Uh, my problem is that my cherry tree gets uh, black elephants for mm. the last two years. It's about 10 years old, but it's only been the last two years it gets infected a whole lot with a black elephant. Mm. Mm. What can I do? Get onto it early. How big is the cherry tree, Norma? It's only a small one. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing I find with aphids is... Get, in, get onto them quickly, and by get onto them, I mean put your gardening gloves on and go outside and squish them. Um, and if you break that life cycle early on before the numbers really, really start building up, for me that is the best way of dealing with them. That way you're not using sprays and plus you're getting out in the garden, you're keeping an eye on what's going on. The second you see a sign, two aphids, get your gardening gloves, squish them. 
But the root cause with that is the plant is actually suffering. There is something wrong with the plant, and that's where I was going back to where I said how the misuse of nitrogen. So you find that there's probably certain nutrients that the plant's actually not getting. So you probably, my suggestion is even go and get a um, a soil pH um, uh, testing kit and just check your pH around the, the root system um, because yeah. often that can be a problem. Um, otherwise, I would probably use go back to the foliar spray using trace elements because you'll find that um, that the if there's do you fertilize it every year? Uh, well, I only put um, cow manure around it. Yeah, I would probably just foliar spray, which is trace elements. Um, yeah, and J- just once. Yeah, but in the growing season. Yeah, I wouldn't do it now. Is it yeah. in a pot or is it in the ground? In the ground. Yeah. So I think the other thing is drainage. Mm. You know, as you say, something not that the plant's not happy about. Mm. Uh, the one tree that we had black aphid issues with um, each year was um, in an area where it really got too wet. And because we've had wet seasons, I actually cut it out last year because I was tired of it because yeah I don't spray anything either um and so I just thought I'll just cut it out because it really was just too wet Mm. so I think the drainage just got worse and worse over the years so it was probably all right when it was first put in because there was a bit of drainage that I put in and so on but over the years that's gotten worse well we forget uh, but we did plant an awful lot of things in drought yeah yeah absolutely and they were planted through the drought yeah and they're at the bottom of a wall so they're quite wet um, so, you know, maybe drainage is a problem and it's suffering a little bit and that's coming back to what Ben's saying, that the plant's not happy. You know, what can be done about it? it's clay. It's clay too. It's clay, yeah. yeah. And yeah. We've, we've had wet, cool summers now for a few years and so soils, I mean, they're fabulously moist, but, you know, in some cases that's bad. Mm. I think there's, there's two in- ingredients um, that will strengthen the cell wall. Um, one is calcium, and the other one is, is silicon. So silicon, you can't. It's not really easy to buy, but if you jump online, you can buy a product called potassium silicate. Potassium, potassium silicate. Sorry, and, can you say that again? Sorry. Uh, potassium silicate. Um, so it's like silicon. Um, that and calcium. Um, probably the two major ingredients to to strengthen the cell structure. So if you can strengthen the cell wall, that'll stop a lot of those sort of sucking and piercing sort of um, insects to to penetrate into what they call a uh, a chloroplast where all your sugars are. So if you can prevent that, then the insect will will eventually will die off or he'll Mm. die on. Do you find silicate in your trace elements? You don't. You don't. No. See, silicon is it's it, silicon's everywhere, but it's not in a soluble form. So to buy it, you've actually got to buy potassium silicate, um, and then you you can mix that up in a in a spray bottle and and follow spray it. Um, it's only but, sort of been really recognised in the past, I think, four or five years. Yeah. And yeah. I do it now. I do it now. Mm-hmm. Or... Um. Probably wait until the growing season is probably the best time to do it. So the plants. Yeah. So for now, what you need to do is go and squish. Yeah. Mm. And then in the growing season, spray some trace elements. Mm. Now I do have uh, eggshells in powder. Can I put that around? Yes. Yeah. Because that's calcium, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, dolomites. What? The go, isn't it? 
It is, yeah. 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 If you can get some dolomite. But the eggshells won't do any harm. All right. Well, a a a few plans of attack there, Norma. Thanks very much for that. All right. Good on you. Bye for now. Bye. Bye bye. Now, we all know um, that uh, while veggie gardens slow down a tad through winter, there's always something happening, and our phone guest today is all over this. She is the author of a new book called The Kitchen Garden, which explains how to grow and use over 55 plants, with each of them delegated to either winter, spring, summer, or autumn. Instead of photos, this gorgeous hardcover book, which has been published by Thames and Hudson, is fully illustrated with delightful watercolours, including the plants, the recipes, the pests, which now look disturbingly cute, and one of my favourites, the section on manures. On the line with us now is the author and illustrator, Lucy Mora. Good morning, Lucy. Uh, good morning, AB. Congratulations on your fabulous book. Thank you so much. It looks like it's um, might have taken a lot of work to get there. Uh, well, I was um, I was given a sort of small amount of time by Thames and Hudson to produce this book, and um, so we went, when everyone else came out of lockdown, I went into my own lockdown of eight <laughs> months <laughs> in my studio in the garden, painting and uh, researching and writing the book. Fantastic. Now, in 2014, you bought an 1870s cottage in central Victoria and you moved there with your hubby and dog. Could you share a bit about the house and garden, what it was like and and what drew you to actually buy it? Because I I think you were in the city before then, is that right? Yes, uh, we were living in Melbourne and um, I just, you know, I love trawling through sort of country real estate sites and came across this house and thought, Oh, I need to go and have a look at that. And um, all the way there, my husband's saying, so are we going to buy this? And I said, oh, no. <laughs> anyway, we, uh, we arrived and um, we were taken through the front door and, um, and it was wonderful, really beautiful house. And um, when we got to the pantry, I stood in it and I said to my husband, I whispered, I have to have it. <laughs> um, it was just I, my dream. And then, of course, we went out into the garden and I saw an orchard and and uh, that was it. Had to have it. And um, so we did this kind of... And we hadn't even decided to move to the country, but, it, you know, it just, it just happened because we're falling in love with this house, I guess. I hope the real estate agent didn't hear you whispering that you had to have it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, out of sight. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, in your book, uh, Lucy, you talk about you, um, your upbringing on a sheep and cattle farm in the southern tablelands of New South Wales, and your dad had a beautiful garden uh, with lawn and roses and, and trees, and your mum was more into herbs of uh, pots of herbs. But your grandparents had what you describe as an exciting garden. Could you tell us uh, a little bit about what this was like and um, how your childhood experiences in that that sort of um, influenced you as an adult? Uh, yes, we used to um, we used to go and visit my grandparents. Um, they lived in a very big established homestead with a wonderful um, garden. Um, it, the garden was mostly a sort of beautiful walled garden with um, roses and um, an enormous magnolia tree and a wonderful fish pond. And But... Um, my cheeky cousins and I used, to, I used to go through this gate that was at the end, down the hill, through the orchard, to the vegetable garden where 
we used to visit Ernie, who was this sort of, you know, Miss McGregor-type character, um, who was sort of grumpy or happy, depending on what day you were there. And um, he he was the one that actually um, drew me to the whole sort of notion of a vegetable garden. In fact, this is probably the only vegetable garden, one of the few vegetable gardens I visited as a child because people didn't really have vegetable gardens back in the sort of early 70s. Um, it was sort of, unless you were Italian, of course, mm-hmm. they were... They were going well for into it. Yep. Yeah, but these established houses often had a vegetable garden and a head gardener, which this house did. And um, I just, I loved it. I he he, you know, he used to pull up carrots and dust off the dirt and give them to us and and flick peas at us. And you know, it was it was, it was charming and very influential to me. Mm, sounds like a lot of fun. Yes was fun. How was soon after moving into your new home did you decide that you needed to create a kitchen garden? Well, when um, when we when we bought the property, the, the woman who handed it over to us said, oh, so the garden is just mow and blow. And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> That's depressing. That. I thought it was mow, blow and hoe. <laughs> <laughs> it is now. It's more like it. It's more like it. So I thought, yes, yes, I'm up for that. And, of course, you know, there was a vegetable bed sitting there and I thought, well, I'm definitely going to have a go at that. And, um, you know, went off to the, you know, the local nursery and bought seedlings and put them all in and thought, yep, I'm going to have a garden like Ernie's. But, um, of course, and, you know, wiggled the hose over them at the end of the day. Well, of course, nothing sort of much happened. And I was very sort of disappointed. So I started to kind of educate myself on how to grow vegetables and of course you know I now know and you can find out through my book if you wanted to um, it's all about making your soil really good and um, and your watering needs that is a vital part of how you have a vegetable garden and you know there's watering and there's watering so you need to um, be very diligent about the soil and the watering yeah, and for sure. To them. Yeah. Now, I mean, you you've got a lot of information in the book. You've got info on how to grow and use plants through the different seasons. Uh, you talk. Um, there's a section on fruit trees. There's a planting quick guide. There's information about crop rotation, companion planting, edible flowers. It's a lot of information, but it, the book is really crisp and clean and lovely to flick through and it doesn't feel overwhelming but you just seem to have struck the right balance in terms of what information you've included how did you decide what to put in and what to leave out um well i i just sort of went with what i knew i guess um and you know i come from a sort of a novice background on this so i i know i didn't want to sort of complicate it for people who really who wanting to start a kitchen garden. Um, so I just, um, you know, I, I went with the, all the things that aren't that difficult to grow and, um, and that probably guided it. It's a, it, it is a, um, it definitely is a, a guidebook. It's been formatted like that so that it's a, people can pick it up, quickly find whatever they're growing and all the information is there. And seasonal is good because, you know, that's something that's really important. Um, you know, it's one of those things you can't sort of know that cabbages are now in season. You can't think, oh, we'll put in some cabbages. You need to have thought about that, you know, 12 weeks earlier. So, yeah, um, 
it's um that's so the book is is it's it's really for some of people who are just who are starting out and you know hopefully it's just sort of uh nice enough for anyone to buy but um that's the sort of basis on why it was produced yeah, fantastic. Now, apart from being um, a fantastic gardener, you're also a self-confessed, um, you have a bit of an obsession with preserving, and we can see some of your creations on your Instagram page, which is lucy.mora.cookingandgardens. Um, when did this obsession with preserving begin? Um, so um, my mother was never a preserver of fruit but um i used to stay with with um a very good friend in our area in bangandor um and um her but she came from a family of six children big noisy family and um they had the most enormous dresser in the kitchen full of preserves and um i was just absolutely enchanted by it and um always if you were the guest saying you got to choose what fruit you might have for for dessert and um and you know i could probably spent the entire meal just sort of <laughs> working out which one it was going to be whether it was the cherries or the apricots or the pears or um and they were always just simply served with ice cream beautiful and, beautiful um, yeah so i just and that you know i just the other thing is we used to always as children be taken to um the royal easter show in sydney and um gosh it's just um rows and rows of beautifully preserved fruit um or like little sort of mosaics in jars and it took my took my interest very early on I guess. Yeah, beautiful. Now, the book is gorgeous and um, Evan was just holding up the page where um, the manures have been illustrated. You're an incredible illustrator and you also create garden maps for people um, out of watercolour. So, I mean, at what point, so you're a gardener, you're a preserver, you're an illustrator, what point did you think to yourself, oh, I really want to write a book? Uh, It was the point when... Thames and Hudson contacted me. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I hadn't even thought of writing a book or illustrating a book. Um, Kirsten Abbott had been following, this is the power of Instagram, following my Instagram site for a while and uh, she had had the idea for a kitchen garden book and, um, and she thought I would be the person to, to do it. And, you know, I, I jumped at it, didn't even hesitate. I just thought, yeah, I can, yeah that's me, I can do that. So, um, yeah, so that's how it came about. And did you choose the plants to put in it um, by what you wanted to paint or what you wanted to plant and grow? No, definitely what I wanted to plant and grow. And um, and it was – I had to kind of, you know, hunt down all these, um, uh, you know, vegetables that if I didn't have them in my garden to paint them and things like that, which became a little difficult, but – uh, we got there in the end. Well, you've really enthused our producer. She wants to buy the book. Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> excellent, <laughs> excellent. Yes. Yeah, so, where, where is the book for sale? Actually, it, um, most bookshops should have it by now. It's, um, it has had um, a lot of interest, and uh, book sales have been really good. So, most bookshops should have it. Otherwise, from my website, which is there's a link on my Instagram. Mm. Lucy Mora Cooking and Gardens. Um, so, um, yeah, jump on and order through me or or, or from any of the book-selling um, sites on the internet. 
Yeah. Now, I mean, really, your illustrations are exceptional, and they are one of the reasons why you'd buy the book. You've got a um, a section in there called the vegetable scrap garden that is just delightfully illustrated. Can you tell us a little bit about this particular section? I I kind of hovered on whether I was going to put that in, but it's interesting that you really like it. Um, it's it's just a bit of fun. It's, it's actually fun to do with children, especially with root vegetables. You can just slice them near the uh, at the top of the root, and um, you know after you've had your carrot, you can just slice it, put it in a dish of water, and it'll start to sort of grow roots or start sprouting from the top. Um, and you can then just plant it back into the garden. Or onions are fabulous for that, or spring onions. Um, it's um, but scrap, you know. Using it, using the whole plant is, and keep using the plant is, is a really good thing to do. You know, use all the leaves and the foliage to sauté, and um, no need to or, or compost it. Don't throw it in the bin. No, abs- yeah, absolutely not. And I mean, with each of the vegetables and fruits that you've included in the book and the fruit trees, uh, you've got a recipe. Now, the recipes are from various people. Was it hard trying to work out what recipe to put in? Um, there's not many that are sourced from people. There are some mm-hmm. um, sourced from from um, well-known cooks, but. Um, I basically um, no, it wasn't hard. It was hard. It was hard, sort of trying to just find one recipe. I could have put many because mm-hmm. I love cooking, and I tried to keep that very simple. So, you know, I didn't want to sort of make it too complicated because, quite honestly, anyone who does have a kitchen garden, it's just sort of at the end of the day. Often you just go out with your truck grab whatever's happening and then just like in your head put together a dish. Hmm. Uh, so I tried to do it sort of on that basis um, and um, and with, you know, with not with a million different recipes and different ingredients, just sort of like making the vegetable shine. Fantastic. And do you have any tips um, for hmm. people who might be wanting to start growing their own fruit and veg? Yeah, just don't be disheartened by failures because, you know, you're going to have many. I have many still. Um, just, keep, you know, just make, just keep reading about what what you should be doing. I mean, the wonderful thing about vegetables is they are seasonal, so it's sort of like, you know, just rip them all out and start again with something else. Um, it's just keep going and, um, yeah, and just as much knowledge as you can possibly load up is good. The so- Your soil is is the first place to start, I would say. Fantastic. Can I ask one question? What about rats and rabbits, both of which drive me crazy? (laughs) Virginia's looking for tips here, Lucy. (laughs) Rats rats and beetroot, I find. Rats and corn. I eat all my corn two years in a row. They love corn. (laughs) Well, yeah, and possums, you know, they'll have a go as well. I, um... Look, I have all kinds of sort of strange-looking cloches I use and and hoops to cover my vegetable beds with nets, that sort of work. But um, with my fruit trees, for instance, I um, not that they're rats in fruit trees or rabbits in fruit trees, but we have a lot of cockatoos in this area and I, 
usually they take the top and I take the bottom. I got a, I have a bit of a sharing thing with with all the creatures, um, but um, you know, let them have some, but not all is my theory. I've stopped growing beetroot. That's my theory. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, you learn as you go. That's right. Somebody, you know, that's the thing. You kind of like if you if it doesn't work for you, just you know, yep. go that- to something else. The rat has beaten me. Well, I think it's just, again, about those cooler summers. All so, right. Yeah, it's been a problem. Well, Lucy, look, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate chatting with you. And uh, good luck with the book and with all your future endeavours. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Really okay. appreciate it. Okay. Bye for now. Great. Thank well, you. Bye. Bye-bye. I think it's just been, you know, I mean, we've had, it's just becoming worse and worse with the rats at our place. And I've tried that New Zealand uh, thing that, you know, puts a bolt through their scone, um, chap down the road, and it, it's been effective for a little bit, but not. The chap down the road, he has uh, an altar of the circle of life, so he has a rat trap. And he catches them, drowns them, and then sticks the sticks them on the on the oh, wood pile. Oh, cannot and the, drown them. <laughs> well, it's just really difficult because they literally. We've just recently. I went out. And all the broccoli heads have been eaten off. So you you spend six weeks growing them, and then they just eat them all before you've you're ready for them. And all our corn got eaten last year. We even had carrots eaten the year before. Beetroot. I think it's the cooler summers. We've, they've, you know, everything is bred up at our place, I and mean, the birds are a lot more in abundance over, you know. Whereas in the in the two thousands, you know, up to two thousand and nine, when it was really dry, right. we had none of these issues really. So I, I feel like it's a little bit of a cycle. And the other thing I think that is really important for everybody to remember is that the things that Bunnings et al. are selling as rat poison also kill owls and any other bird or dog or anything that were... So you can only use old versions of rat poison. If you read the label, you've got to make sure that you've got old versions because the the new versions kill the birds. But even insecticides and fungicides, we need to stop using them Mm. because it's it's not the answer. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, because you kill everything. It's, it's because broad spectrum. Well, that's spectrum. that. It's just a quick solution, but it's not the root cause. Mm. So the root cause is is that plant is actually asking for something. Yeah, so, absolutely. Because those insects will fly over, and they'll see that the that plant's suffering. Yeah, yeah they they, 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 they put attack. out their chemical yeah. receptors saying we're in trouble here, and the uh, pest insects go terrific. Well, let's they, they let's move it. on in. They and the other thing too see. is, if you kill the aphids, you're probably killing the ladybirds that are going to yeah. eat your aphids. Yeah. Mm, so we need to stop using yeah. a lot of those those particular things. And I think also, it's no good saying, "Oh, well, I'm only using a garlic spray," mm. because if you use a garlic spray. On the aphids, you're using it on the ladybirds. Yeah. Yeah. Something to kill is going to kill. kill everything. Yeah. But getting back to rats quickly, Evan, uh, we're having relatively good success with a trap called, uh, it's from Good Nature, and it's a um, trap that was developed in New Zealand. Um, well, less of a trap and more of a killer, mm. uh, was developed in New Zealand to, be, to put out into the native forests, which were the birds were getting attacked by rats. And essentially it's powered by a um, carbon dioxide canister and essentially hammers the rat to death very, very quickly. Like Within five mm. seconds the rat is dead and then if anything takes it, um, they're not going to get harmed. So we're, we've got a couple. We've got one in the house and one out in the chook yard. And um, 
when there's no other food around, um, that's essentially when they'll go for it. So it's tricky when there's vegetables and things still growing yeah, because try, they will yeah. go for yeah, that. Yeah, we it's haven't a had a lot of luck with them. Yeah, I, yeah. I even have it up in the roof at the moment to try and get the ones in the ceiling. <laughs> and they just don't seem to go for no, it. No, we've got ones so, in our ceiling too. So I, I uh, have you got the good nature. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I haven't yeah. had a lot yeah. of luck. And there's killed a few. Yeah. But, you know, there's squillions of them. <laughs> yeah, there are. Yeah. yeah. They, they, it is a great having device. a party in my roof, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they've come to mine as well. Yeah. I don't mind the mice. I can cope with mice. But I can't mm. cope with the rats. And I, as I said, I, I used to love growing beetroot. Mm. I love beetroot. So I've got to be careful because I've, what I've noticed on our property, so top of the nursery, we've got a bit of long grass and we have a long tooth, uh, a long tooth rat and they're actually quite endangered. So yep. it's something we just recently found out. Mm. So we won't, we try not to, to use I'm, any of that stuff. Well, quite. I, I have watched my rat and thought, I wonder if you're native or if you're not because mm. it's not... It's, it's, not, it's not the black rat that I know from Europe, which yeah. I hate. Yeah, so uh, it, it can be very tricky to tell the difference, with the main difference being that you'll be able to see when they're dashing past at a million miles an hour, <laughs> um, is that the um, feral rat's tails are longer. Mm. Longer than their body, sorry, not longer. Yeah, so whereas the, um, the bush rats and the native rats and rodents, mm. the tails are generally shorter. And then there's also things like the fur on their tummy is different and the shape of their ears, but they're things that you don't... You can't possibly You can't see. ID until it's dead. dead. Mm. So what I do is always, whenever the good nature trap um, kills one, I always double-check, make sure, yep, definitely mm. either Rattus Rattus or Rattus Norwegicus. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and, and so far... That's what it's been. And, and I think particularly around like chick, chook yards and things like that, that you, that's where you're going to be having the pest animals. Mm. So, yeah, it's, um, it certainly is a bit, bit, bit tricky. It does make me unhappy. Yeah. yeah, you just have to, as you say, you change what you grow. And that's mm. what we've started to do a little bit. But we've never had them eat broccoli before, so that was new. Yeah, <laughs> it's frustrating, isn't it? And I'm sure they, and they eat- don't eat kale. No, they don't eat kale. Absolutely, they don't. They don't eat celery. And oh, I, there's quite a lot of things they mm, don't eat. Mm. Um, yeah, but other things do eat them. <laughs> yes, <that's right. laughs> exactly. I yeah. know. Oh, there's always something, isn't there? It's <laughs> yes, <laughs> not fair. You try and do the right thing. You try and be sustainable and grow your own food. I like... think. I think the thing that people mustn't do, though, is they mustn't put. put and people say, "Oh, I'm, I have to kill the rats. They're in the house. I don't care." They go outside and they're dead. And if they're going to kill birds, it's just not yeah, acceptable. Yeah. I mean, we mm. shouldn't even be selling it, really. I don't think we should no, be it's selling funny it. funny that it's on the market, mm. isn't it? It's yeah. shocking. Mm. It's yeah. shocking. Mm. It is. Not good at all. Now, Ben, we didn't get time to talk about your pet topic, really. We've, oh, that's we've, okay. We've got five yeah. minutes. If you can, if you can no, talk about you... plant immunity in three and a half, you're right. Yeah, no, it goes a little bit more depth than that. So. <laughs> yeah, we'll have, we'll it is it what, what we spoke about with the fruit trees, you yeah. know. But I think for plant immunity, it, it is that potassium silicate and, and, and calcium is a, one of the two major sort of nutrients that, that a plant will actually need. Um, like I said, like uh, potassium silicate has sort of just been really discovered, I think, to be in a plant, like to strengthen the cell structure probably the past uh, three or four years, sort of. So and uh, but noticing it's it's everywhere in the in the soil, but it's not in a soluble form. So now there's companies that are producing uh, as a soluble form for, for the plant to uptake it. But 
plant immunity is to to prevent like you know you, you sap sucking in in your chewing insects. So you, you're not having to use insecticides or herbicides, and that's one of the or, reasons uh, for fungicides. That's one of the reasons for for seaweed, isn't it? That it strengthens the plant. Will kelp, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, but it's it's more like you know, and then mixing like um, fulvic acid or humic acid, because um, you can actually buy that too as a as a soluble form, um, and mixing that through your your, your nutrients because it chelates it. So chelating, referring, it, it actually means Latin is is, is claw. So it'll grab those nutrients and the plant will just pull it in and it'll just use those nutrients as, as it needs it. Mm. So um, and, and calcium is probably a really good one because it is a very slug mineral. Mm-hmm. It moves very slow uh, in the plant and also in the soil. So adding a bit of fulvic acid or even a bit of humic acid to, to bring it in, probably better fulvic actually, not humic, um, it'll grab it as it needs it. And Some of those humates uh, make phosphorus more available too, don't they? They do, yeah. 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 But then if you use too much nitrogen, then nitrogen will block like your phosphorus and your, your potassiums mm. and your magnesiums and they all become deficient. So nitrogen it does play a huge, huge role in how you actually apply it. Um, so you don't block those those minor elements. Mm. So and that's why I always uh, say you always use very small amounts of um, uh, of your bulk elements, um, and then also use your your your, your minor elements as well. Mm. Um, nitrogen, I think the best way with that one is actually mix that with fulvic acid, um, and then foliar spray. It. That's the best way to actually apply it. Mm. Yeah, so the plant actually will take up the majority of it. Yeah, because it'll leach through the soil very quickly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ben, well, we're running out of time. Um, I definitely want to have that conversation with you again. So hopefully um, I'll be, Virginia, you do the rostering so you can put, put me ben on, on with, with you. Ben. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have a longer conversation. Um, look, it is all that we've got time for. I'd like to, first of all, thank Lucy Mora for coming on to talk about her book, The Kitchen Garden, which is available in bookshops now for $45. Um, I'd like to thank Ben Brooker from Treasured Perennials Nursery, Evan Gorky from Ochre Landscape and Virginia Haywood for coming in. Surprise, surprise. Um, thanks so much to Burn for producing the show and thank you to Liz for doing our socials and, of course, thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning into the show. My name's A.B. Bishop, so until next week, bye-bye for now. Mm-hmm.